Well, no one knows his name, and his life seemingly was a complete failure. It is possible that his life was marked by delinquency for a while, for a long time. No one knows specifically his crime, and undoubtedly he was a criminal. He was most likely an outcast of society. He could have been a Jew, of course a rebellious Jew. He found himself mixed up with the wrong crowd, and no doubt he shared his criminal life with others. Perhaps they would mock at the authorities for not being able to capture them. But one day, their lives came to a screeching halt. We don't know how. Could have been in the middle of a robbery. They could have been involved in some kind of treason, or maybe they tried to escape after having killed an innocent bystander, but nonetheless, they were captured. Captured by a cruel regimen who wanted to demonstrate to the Roman world that such crimes will not be tolerated. Their method, quick judgment, but a slow death before the eyes of all the witnesses, from children to the eldest men and women. See, the Romans knew that their method would create fear in the witnesses that stood there watching this sentence being carried out and this to prevent such crimes to increase. But these two, apparently, were not so affected. Instead of being afraid, they were angrier for having been captured, perhaps. To them, life was an injustice and their death just a greater injustice. They deserved more than this. They, they were victims of this functional and unjust life. Now this injustice was followed by a death that only showed the shame of their delinquent lifestyle. It was totally unfair as far as they saw it. The constant badgering and whippings would only awake more and more anger in their hearts. It seemed like what was sustaining them was the resistance powered by their own anger. They lifted their heavy wooden cross and began that long, shameful trek to the place where they would breathe their last. And all of a sudden, something caught their eye. A man in the same condition, carrying a cross, heading to the same place. But this man... No anger, no irate words. Yes, he was suffering excruciating pain, but there was something different about this man. What had this man done? What crime did he commit to have to die in this shameful way? Who was this man? They arrived, not only two, but the three of them, he, his friend, and this man. As the soldiers lifted the crosses, this man was placed in between them. 
he on the right and his friend on the left. Ah, treason. That must be it. Treason against his country. That must be his crime as they could hear the loud shouts of the high priests and scribes. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, his chosen one, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Okay. (laughs) This man has declared himself to be the king of the Jews. And even the sign above the head betrayed this in a sarcastic way. This is the king of the Jews. Great. Some kind of lunatic among us, or so they thought. But for them, it was just another reason to get angrier. The injustice of their death was only increased with this crazy one in between them. The loud shouts of the religious leaders, the infectious hatred against this king of the Jews caused these two criminals to join in the mocking and insults with all their wrath. The intensity of their pain, the open wounds from the whippings, nor the ruptured veins that would normally cause one to faint, none of this diminished the hatred they had for the man in the middle. But all of a sudden, everything changed. Everything changed. Will you open your Bibles with me to Luke 23? Luke 23, beginning at verse 32. As we see this scene at the cross unfold, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and verse 32. And the Word of God says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other answered, rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve from our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me 
in paradise. This is the scene at the cross. Three men hanging on a shameful cross. So much going on. So much mockery. So much hurling of insults. So, so, so many angry words hurled at Jesus. As we look at other parallel passages, we discover that both of them, the one on the right and on the left, were both involved in hurling these insults to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 44, Matthew 27, verse 44, it says, the robbers, in plural, the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. They were both engaged in hurling these mocking and angry words towards this man in the middle. Both of them, probably not understanding all that's going on, filled with hatred, filled with a heart that would only condemn them. But something happened to drastically change one of them. This morning, I want to present to you grace, pure grace, that is found at the scene of the cross. This sheer and pure grace. And with that, I want to present seven elements of pure grace that marks true conversion and also brings about true satisfaction no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. The first one is the foundational bedrock of grace. The first element that we will see is the foundational bedrock of grace. And the next six are products of pure grace. Now what is grace? Just a quick definition. I'm sure many of you have heard this definition. Grace is simply unmerited favor from God towards us. Favor that God has extended towards us who are absolutely undeserving of that favor. But I would like to add to that definition and state that not only is it unmerited favor, but it also is power that he gives to us that brings about these products that we will see as it unfolds in this scene at the cross. The first element, as we stated, is the foundational bedrock of grace. The foundational bedrock of grace. What is that? That grace is a miraculous, sovereign work of God. Grace is a miraculous, sovereign work of God. As we see in verse, we'll, we'll 
be tracing through verse 39 through verse 43. Verse 39, we see one of the criminals who were, were hanged there was, was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So this one criminal continues to insult and mock, and he, he, he as if asks a question to Christ, okay, are you really the Christ? If this is true of you, then my understanding of this Christ is a person who has enough power to be able to save himself and not only save himself, but save us too. So if you are truly the Christ, which I highly doubt, then save yourself. Can't even save yourself. Basically saying you are an absolute fraud. Verse 40. But the other answered, and listen what Luke writes here, rebuking. This is amazing. This is an incredible expression. Why? Because we read in Matthew 27, verse 44, that this man was also involved in hurling insults. And he could have also said, you are an incredible fraud. If you are the Christ, save yourself. He was involved in the mockery against Christ, but now he's rebuking his friend. How is this possible? How is it that he went from mocking Christ to now rebuking his friend for mocking Christ? There is only one explanation. Grace took place in his heart as a miraculous, sovereign work of God. And scripture uses the term new birth. There was a new birth that took place. There is a man hanging on the cross looking at death as its imminent end. And he immediately experienced a birth, a new birth, a rebirth, regeneration. Regeneration is the theological term we use for the new birth. And this is very important. I really believe this is very important. The understanding of the new birth. We have to understand that the new birth is solely a sovereign, miraculous work of God. Totally unconditional. Totally irresistible. It is God's work of producing life from death. I have the privilege of preaching weekly at our church there, and I'm going through 1 John. And I was struck by John's expression of the new birth. Just real quickly, I wanted to share with you from 1 John 5, which we are initiating there at, at Bethania, Bethany Church. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, it says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, if we look and peer into the grammatical Greek structure here, it's saying whoever continually believes that Jesus is the Christ, literally it says, has been born 
of God. In other words, the one who continually believes, the one who is, is exercising continually that faith in God, proves, gives evidence. This believing is a product of the fact that he has been born of God. And I think that priority is crucial. One is born in the new birth, regenerated, and that new birth produces the faith. The faith. The one who believes that Jesus is the Christ is the one who shows that he has been born of God. And this is what was mind-boggling to Nicodemus. If you recall in John chapter 3, probably the most extensive passage regarding the new birth. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, to be able to see the kingdom of God, in other words, to be able to taste, to be able to experience the kingdom of God, there must be a priority of the new birth. You must be born again. In verse 9, we see Nicodemus, somewhat confused, said to him, how can these things be? How can these things be? In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? You are a teacher in Israel. And literally, it says the teacher, one who was known there as a prominent teacher in Israel. And you do not understand these things. I I believe that Nicodemus understood. Because for all his life, Nicodemus was building his, if you will, his salvation on the fact of all the things that he had done to keep the law. And what Christ, was, what Christ was offering him here is that there is only one way that you can see the kingdom of God and it has to do with a new birth and that you have absolutely nothing to do with. And he uses an illustration to, to state that in verse eight. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does it depend on? What does the new birth depend on? On on what I do? Does it even depend on my faith? Does it depend on, on what I say or how I look? It depends solely on the work of the Spirit. Solely on the work of the Spirit. And He will save. He will have mercy on whom He has mercy. And so I believe this was blowing Nicodemus' 
away because he knew that he would have to renounce all that he had believed up to this point and place his total faith on Christ who is the only one through the spirit that can produce new birth. That's exactly what happened on this, the heart of this man on the cross. We have no other explanation. This man was ridiculing, was mocking, was insulting, was using words of hatred towards Jesus, the man in the middle, and all of a sudden, his heart is changed. He has experienced rebirth. All of a sudden, his eyes are opened. Just like in 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verse 4, where we see Paul saying, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This man was blinded. But all of a sudden, his eyes have been opened to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who was being crucified right there beside him. His heart is opened. Before, with great hatred towards Christ, now he is horrified. Look at the change here. Look at the transformation. Now he is horrified that his friend is ridiculing Jesus. That is the new birth. That is the bedrock of grace. Grace is a miraculous, sovereign work of God. I think another aspect of this is very important. What grace does is not just modification of the heart. I think this is very important. It is not just improving us. It is not just making us better. What grace does is it takes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh. What it does is it takes a dead heart and gives it life. We were dead in our trespasses and he has made us alive. It's not just making us better is making us alive, bringing life from death. Burkhoff in his systematic theology says, regeneration is that act of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of the soul is made holy. This is the epicenter of God's work in man. R.C. Sproul, in very similar words, defines regeneration as the act of God alone in which he renews the human heart, making it alive when it was dead. In regeneration, God acts at the deepest point of the human person. It is the immediate supernatural work of the Holy Spirit wrought in us. Its effect is to quicken us, which means to raise us and to impart life. It is to quicken us to spiritual life from spiritual death. It changes the disposition of our souls, inclining our hearts to God. This is what grace does. It is a miraculous, 
sovereign work of God. And when this work of God takes place, it begins to produce, it begins to change and transform man's life. And so from this passage, we will now see six products, six products of pure grace, of pure grace. First of all, pure grace produces a holy fear of God, a holy fear of God. Verse 40, but the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? This man now recognizes the need to fear God. He recognizes his current situation as being or receiving the just condemnation that he deserves. Before, he wanted off the cross, but now he realizes, I deserve this. We deserve this, as he talks to his friend there. The fear of God, what is this? The fear of God, one way to describe it is this. The fear of God is that, that knowledge that God has absolute right to send us to hell at any moment. He is totally just in doing that. It, it, it talks about reverence. It talks about respect. It talks about the marvel. And so here when he turns to his friend and says, do you not even fear God? That should be our response here. Shouldn't be ridiculing him and mocking him. It should be fearing him. Fearing him, revering him, understanding who he is and understanding that he has absolute right to condemn us and to eternally punish us. And this is what grace, pure grace, produces. That holy fear of God. All of us who have experienced a new birth have experienced a holy fear. We are to love God. It's the great commandment. But in that love, there is that fear. Not this being scared, but this awe, this marvel. He is God, and I am not. He is great, and I am not. Placing God on the throne. Pure grace produces a holy fear of God. Secondly, pure grace produces an acknowledgement of one's utter sinfulness. An acknowledgement of one's utter sinfulness. The first part of verse 41, and we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, for all the bad things, all the utter sinful acts that we have committed. Here, this man finally acknowledges that all his delinquency were just symptoms 
of the real problem. It was not the problem of society. It wasn't that he was caught in bad luck. It wasn't that his culture shaped him to be this way. It was his own rebellion towards God. It was his own heart that produced this kind of lifestyle. And this gave him fear. We are suffering justly for all that we've done. We are the ones responsible. We are the ones, not victims, but the ones who should be punished forever. There was a radical change in this man. And his perspective now was totally different of what was going on at the cross. The danger of his sin now was more important to him than the danger of his physical death. He was more concerned of the eternal consequences of his sin than he was of his physical death. And this perspective really doesn't manifest until he realizes the third element of pure grace, the third product, and that is that pure grace produces acknowledgement of Christ's righteousness. An acknowledgement of Christ's righteousness. There in verse 41, but this man has done nothing wrong. This man is innocent. This man is righteous. This man has done nothing wrong. This man is suffering unjustly. The man crucified on the side of Christ, they were suffering justly. The unjust suffering justly. But Jesus was the just, the righteous one, suffering unjustly. Now, it doesn't give us details of all his understanding and all the implications of Christ's righteousness, but he did understand this. That man in the middle was not suffering justly. He was a righteous man. A man who was perfect. But his eyes were open to see this righteousness. Now, We're not sure how, like I said, the Spirit worked in a miraculous way to convert his heart. But I have to wonder. I have to wonder if all the jeering in sarcastic ways were used by God to impact this heart. We know that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God, preaching, as in Romans 10. So it's possible, as people are, are, are screaming out to Jesus, you are the king of the Jews. And he probably was engaged in that same jeering. And then all of a sudden, God probably used those same sarcastic words to say, you know what? He is the king of the Jews. He is the Christ God works in such ironic ways. So here now, 
He acknowledges the righteousness of Christ. He has done nothing wrong. And his sinfulness is even manifested with greater ugliness in light of the righteousness of Christ. Overwhelmed with the fear of God and and his own sinfulness and the righteousness of Christ, we now come to the fourth product of grace. Fourth product of grace. Pure grace produces a cry for mercy. A cry for mercy. Verse 42. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me. Very simple cry. Now, imagine the scene. He's not sitting around a coffee table talking to Jesus and say, hey, you know, I got a request for you. Could you remember me? He's hanging on the cross with excruciating pain, just about to breathe his last. There's no way we could dramatize it. It would be something like, remember me. He's in sheer pain. Sheer pain. But he's more concerned of his soul than he is of his physical circumstance. And he cries out for the mercy of Jesus. He acknowledges there's only one way to hope here. And that is the man in the middle. And so he cries out just as the publican in Luke 18 and says, have mercy on me, the sinner. Right here, all his pride is absolutely shattered. He doesn't come to Christ with excuses. He doesn't come to Christ with a life full of good works. He has absolutely nothing to offer Christ. His lifestyle has, has brought him to this cross He has nothing but sin to give Christ. He can't say, here is my resume. Could you remember me? Could you show favor upon me? He has absolutely nothing, nothing to show him. He recognizes that. But he understands that this man in the middle, who just minutes before said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he recognizes This man can bring forgiveness. That is my only hope. There is no other way for hope. And so he cries out, Jesus, Yeshua, God is salvation. Be your name and save me. Remember me. Pure grace produces A cry for mercy. A cry for forgiveness. No longer is he seeking for someone to bring him down from the cross. He now seeks for his salvation from sin. So he cries out for mercy. He cries out for forgiveness. Fifthly, pure grace 
produces an acknowledgement of the true life. Of the true life. He says here, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. These are very curious words. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. You can imagine that this man had, had some kind of concept of, of, a, of an earthly kingdom, but probably was a bit confused of what is to be expected after death. The Jews did have an understanding of a life after death, as we see from Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. But curiously here, this is very interesting. We discover that this man, as he says this, when you come in your kingdom. Now remember the scene again. They're both hanging on the cross, ready to breathe their last. But this man has an understanding that Christ somehow is going to live on. Doesn't really understand all of it, but he knows that there will be a kingdom. He acknowledges a kingdom. He acknowledges that there is more to life than just this earthly life. He begins to understand there is something about a life after. There's something about eternal life. And he starts to understand what is the true life. I love that verse in John 17 in the high priestly prayer by Christ. Verse three, when Christ says, this is eternal life, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that is life. That is eternal life, that they may know you, talking to the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have Sent. So this man on the Christ is understanding that life has to do with this man in the middle. If I'm going to experience life, true life, it has everything to do with Jesus. With Jesus. He begins to understand true life. And his desire is that when he dies, sometime in the future, Perhaps some kind of waiting time. Whenever the kingdom is established, we're not sure exactly how long this kingdom will take to be established, but whenever it's established, Jesus, remember me, include me. I want to be there. So I think he has this, uh, an understanding of some kind of a waiting period before the kingdom is established to actually enjoy the kingdom. And to his surprise, we see the last product of grace. The last product of grace, pure grace produces immediate, immediate salvation. Immediate salvation. Verse 43. And Jesus said to him, truly, I believe he says truly there because what he's about to say is almost impossible to believe. I want you to understand, basically, I want you to understand what I'm about to say. This is, this, is, this is gonna blow your mind. Truly, I say to you, today, immediately, you shall be with me in paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, well, once we die, yeah, there's gonna be a, a time of of." Of waiting, the Catholics taught this, you know, purgatory, we gotta wait for that sometime. Uh, there's gonna be this, this sleep. No. Today, 
in a very real, conscious way, you will be enjoying ecstasy with me in heaven. When he says paradise, that's a euphemism for for heaven. You will be with me. Basically, what Jesus is saying is immediately you will have all the rights of a firstborn. He gives them all the rights to enjoy the, the, the richest blessings that any child of God can experience. Christ receives him totally forgiven as if he had never sinned. And he would be in the glorious presence of God forever. Today. He would enjoy all the intimacy with Jesus today. What was it that gained this incredible blessing? Was it his works? He had nothing to offer. Beloved, it is pure grace. Pure grace. The pure grace of God. The pure grace of God that is a miraculous sovereign work of God. The pure grace of God that produces a holy fear of God. That produces an acknowledgement of one's utter sinfulness that produces the acknowledgement of Christ's righteousness that produces a cry for mercy that produces an acknowledgement of what true life is and produces immediate salvation now there might be somebody here who's not experienced the birth the new birth We pray that the Spirit of God will touch your heart. And if this message has touched your heart, the Spirit of God might be speaking to you through his word. Just cry out for mercy. Acknowledge Christ's righteousness. Acknowledge your utter sinfulness. Cry out that that God would remember you, that God would forgive you. And in doing so, you will experience right now immediate salvation. Immediate salvation. And if you were to die right now crying out for mercy, you would be with him forever. That is pure grace, my friends. Pure, pure grace. I don't know if you've thought about this. This man who has nothing but a life of delinquency off, uh, uh, offering to, to God, that's all he had. He is enjoying Christ more than we are because he is with him in a real sense that one day we will as well. There's so many implications of this passage, of these great truths There are theological implications. This highlights, of course, the grandeur of God. It highlights the sinfulness of man and the need of the new birth. That is the only way that man can see the kingdom of God. It is a new birth only through the Savior. I believe this has also implications in counseling. This is a great passage for counseling purposes. I believe this is one of the most hope-filled passages in all of Scripture. Hope that does not depend on what can, one can do, but totally in what Christ has done and is doing. 
as people are, are maybe in this, some kind of despair, distress, or whatever, Christ is the only one that brings hope. Have you ever meditated on the first line of Psalm 23? It's just an incredible expression. The Lord is my shepherd. That being the case, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd, the one who shepherds my soul. If this is the case, this is the conclusion, I shall not want. I am absolutely satisfied with that. The man in the middle was the Lord. So the man standing there says, I shall not want. This is sufficient. He kept looking at him in sheer pain, perhaps staring. The two were agonizing. But his anger had turned into joy. Though he was suffering the most excruciating physical pain he had ever experienced, the pain of sin had been lifted. The criminal was now a saint by something that he did know by Jesus who was shedding blood right next to him. Every drop of blood represented pure grace in his life. All of a sudden he heard him shout, it is finished. Then Jesus died. And what about him? He was faint and about to breathe his last but now he was experiencing a peace way beyond comprehension and a confidence that he would soon be with Jesus. Shortly after, the soldiers approached him. It was their custom, these soldiers, to break the legs of those hanging there, there to accelerate their death. He hears the death shout of his friend as they break his legs. Then they come to him. He knows what's about to happen. With all their force, they swing their spears and crush his legs. Again, the death shout. But immediately, he is with Jesus. With all the blessings that Christ had promised him. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Only by the pure grace of our sovereign God. Father, we thank you that it is all of you. We come to you, Father, with empty hands, with dirty hands. Come to you, Father, acknowledging that we are a people of unclean lips, unclean lives, needing your pure grace. Father, I just pray for those who might not know Christ, who have not experienced the new birth. I pray that your spirit would penetrate the heart of stone, produce life in them, that they would cry out for mercy as they acknowledge their sinfulness, his righteousness, and that they will experience the joy of the satisfying salvation that real life has everything to do with Jesus. I pray for those, Father, who are heavy laden with some kind of despair or distress, that they also can shout out, the Lord is my shepherd. 
I shall not want. He is my all-sufficiency. He is my all-satisfaction. Because he is the greatest constant. Thank you, Father, for grace, for pure grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.